Well, it's exciting to get into the next letter to the next church. We're now in church number five. And uh, this time we're looking at the message to the church of Sardis. And so let's read from Revelation chapter 3. And we're reading verses 1 to 6 this morning. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names inside us, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm told by reliable sources, because I've never seen this myself, but our nearest star system, Alpha Centauri, is 4.3 light years away from us. Now, that sounds amazing. Thank you, Alex. The speed of light is how many kilometers per second? Anyone know? Alex, again. You're going to get lollies after this. <laughs> the speed of light is... And there are too many scientists here, so I'm going to keep to the figures here. 299,792 kilometers per second. That's faster than my diesel ute, I tell you now. And so, if that's the speed of light per second, our nearest, nearest star system, 4.3 light years away. That's a long way. Now, this sounds like the story sums we used to get at school. If a star 30 light years away exploded and died five years ago, are you still keeping with me? No. It's a long time anyway. We would not be able to tell by looking at that star for another 25 years that it was dead. Amazing, isn't it? There's one scientist nodding his head, so I'm happy. You see, though that star is no longer in existence, the light from that star would still go on shining from our perspective, even though in reality the source of that light was gone. Think about it. And that's the lesson, and I'm not ending here by the way, that's the lesson that the Lord brings to the church at Sardis. He says, the reflected light from the past still shines from you. And everything looks normal on the surface, but the light on the inside is nearly extinguished. How does Jesus do that? Because this is the one bringing the message to the church of Sardis. Jesus Christ, the risen Saviour, the one who brings this message. How does he do that? 
And I love the way he does it. Every single church that we've looked at so far, he uses their local story to highlight that lesson for them. And the same here with Sardis, no different. So we need to learn a little bit about Sardis because we're very far from there now. We're in New Zealand, very far. The word Sardis, the name of the of the city, meant light bearer. Today it's called Sart, and it's no longer a city, it's only an archaeological site, sadly. And so the city's name, Sardis, or Lightbearer, was located at the head or, or the top of the Hermas Valley. And uh, put it, I haven't got the valley here for you, but there's a kind of a picture of where it is. You see at the head of the valley, here's part of the city, but the main part of the city was up on Mount Molus. I love that name. Must be where we've got our word mole from. You've got a mole on your face, right? It was the spur on the mountain, and that's where our words come from, is from the Latin. Alright, in the Greek. Mount Molus, and you spell it with a T, by the way. And so, part of the city was up on Mount Molus, and the other half of the city, as it expanded, was at the head of the Hermes Valley, just below. And running in this valley was the Pactolus River. And uh, the interesting thing about the Pactolus River was that it was full of gold. Full of gold. And so um, they used to put sheepskins with the woolly bits up in the riverbed, weigh them down with some rocks, and then as the water would, would uh, wash over the sheepskins, it would catch up this gold dust. And the city became extremely, extremely profitable from this gold. They're known for it. In fact, if you've ever heard the story of Midas and his golden touch, well, the story originated here. The Greeks told it. And it was mythical. And also, what all the gold did was, it enabled the city to grow exponentially. Because everyone, everyone came for the gold rush, right? We've experienced that in this country too, a few years ago. Down in Greymouth in that area. And people came for the gold. And it also enabled to the king, and the region was called Lydia, it enabled this king to have big armies and to pay for them and so to start expanding his territories. And so the region of Lydia expanded. And they even went against some of the Persians and other of the nations around them. And as this city expanded and they got richer and richer, the citizens got more wealthy as well, of course. And as they do in many societies, the poorer people stayed at the bottom of the hill and the richer people stayed at the top of the hill. I wasn't going to name St. John's Hill, but I... <laughs> but there was a little bit of a... There was a bit of an element here of irony... Because carved into Mount Molus, below where the rich were living, by the way, were over a thousand caves for the dead. And so there the wealthy were living on top of the dead. Interesting little facts. They also had a temple to Artemis. And uh, where have we come across Artemis before? In which church? Church at Ephesus, specifically. They had a major temple there to Diana, or Artemis. And here they had a smaller temple too. Um, and with it, of course, came the same moral problems for the church. 
Exactly the same, nothing differed. And they had lots of money, so it actually added to the problems. But when the church at Sardis received this letter, this city was in its heyday. It was no longer rich. The gold had been got out the out of the river, it wasn't so rich anymore and the city was in serious decline. And that is when they get this letter and that kind of adds up to what the Lord is saying here. Because like many churches, the church started reflecting the society they were living in. And so the church at Sidus was known for being a bit all-knowing and being a bit, we can do this, and being self-reliant. But like the society around them, it was now also in decline, spiritually. You see, the people of this town of Sardis had this very proud and arrogant attitude because they didn't even have city walls up on the higher bit of Sardis. Why? Because of those high cliffs. It was seen as impenetrable. There was only one little way up to the top. I don't know how they carried building material up there, but... There was only one narrow little place where people could get to the top. It was impenetrable, nearly. And this gave the people this overconfidence, this arrogance, this pride. We live in Sardis, and it was known in the surrounding territories. But it also led, as it usually does, to laziness, to complacency, to a she'll-be-right attitude. It's alright, the mountain will protect us. And so they had a few guards up there usually, but you could actually protect this place with very few soldiers. And so they didn't even bother with city walls. They left the poor to kind of fend for themselves down in the valley. And because there was this expansion into the surrounding territories, no kings left that unsaid, and so they would retort and kings would invade. And so it happened twice in their history that they were invaded and conquered. In 549 BC, there's an interesting story recorded by early historians, how soldiers were sitting up at the top, looking at an invading force who were camped around them in that valley. And one of the soldiers lost his helmet and it fell down the cliff. And... Next thing these observers saw was the soldier scampering down the hill and they thought, how did he get down? And so they watched him carefully and they noted exactly where he went up. And they said, aha. And that night, an army scaled those battlements and they went up that track because it hadn't been guarded. The, the guards at the top were asleep. That's how confident they were. And then in 218 B.C., as another army was encamped in the valley, and same problem, they obviously hadn't read the history books. And as they were watching and wondering how they were going to scale those walls, and many armies had tried but failed because it's quite crumbly on those walls, they noted that some vultures were sitting around in a specific place. And as they watched, they noted people bringing bodies down a little place and chucking them out down the walls. And they noted, aha. And again, that night, they went up that little track and the city fell. 
And so the Lord uses these historical facts in the lesson that he has from what a lesson as Jesus did when he was still here on earth. As he walked among his disciples, as he preached to people, he would use what was around them for the life lessons here again to this church at Sardis. And so what does the Lord say to them? He comes to them this time in his role as the spirit of the churches. The one who has the seven spirits. So who is speaking here? Look at the words really carefully. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him, so who's that, him? Jesus Christ, who has the seven spirits of God, who's that? The Holy Spirit in his completeness. And it's the, Holy, the seven spirits of who? Of God. Here's the Trinity here speaking to this church but specifically emphasizing the Holy Spirit here, God as the Spirit. We need to take note here, because what does the Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is the one who gives spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is the one who keeps that life alive, right? This is the one speaking to you, the one who gives life. I am God. I hold the seven stars in my hand. What is that? The church and its leaders. He sometimes called them the angel of the seven churches. I hold you in my hand, the one who gives you life, the one who keeps that life living. And what does he say to them? What is that message in the rest of verse 1? He says to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What does the Holy Spirit say to this church, the one who knows the very existence of their life? He says to them, I know your works are there. You're doing all the Christian stuff. I know your reputation is there. You're known for a church which loves me. You're known to be a good church. Not only is your reputation there, life is not there. Your works are there. Your reputation is intact, but there is no life there. You should be the light bearer as the church of Sardis, but your light is nearly out. You see, what he's saying is that the essence of the church is not in its programs, and they must have had programs that day. See, every church has programs. They must have had buildings. Their life wasn't in their past achievements. Their life wasn't in their reputation or in their doctrinal correctness but in their spiritual life with Jesus Christ. Their fellowship with the living Christ, with the seven spirits. And what is the evidence of that? Their obedience to His Word, their obedience to His guidance, and their repentance before Him for when they did sin. That is always the evidence for life in Christ, obedience and repentance. He says, your works are there, your reputation is there, your life is nearly gone. Therefore, he says, verse 2, wake up! There is still light, but wake up now! Be watching now! Like those guys who fall as fell asleep. Wake up! You can still be watchful, but you need to do so now. Your life is nearly out. You are going to be conquered. 
Wake up! Verse 2 and verse 3. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Do you see the urgency there? You're about to die, so wake up and strengthen the little bit of life there still is. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What is he saying to them? He's saying, wake up. It's so dangerous to you because you're deluded about your own state. You think you are well. You're unconcerned about your condition, but in fact you're dying. And the life is nearly gone from you. So strengthen what remains of the life of the church which is still there. Your works are incomplete before my Father. There's work for you to do. It is not complete yet because it's not done in Christ. The works I had for you here are not complete because you are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ as a church anymore. There is sin between you and me. Wake up. Remember what you heard and keep it. What, is he, what, is, what are they to remember? He's using the, 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 the phrase here to bear in mind. Remember, bear in mind how you received the word initially. A church was planted there. How was a church planted there? Because be- believers heard the word. Or rather, it could have been unbelievers that heard the word. And then they were obedient to it. And then a church was started. What is a church? A gathering of believers together. They heard the word, they accepted it, they believed it, they were obedient to it. He says, keep it. Remember it and keep it. Be obedient to it. And repent. Those are the words that he gives to them. If you want to stay alive, you need to remember what you heard, keep it and repent. And then the life will continue to be in you. But look at the warning. Because he knows the humanity as he knows your humanity and mine. There's always a warning that comes. He says, if you do not watch, there's the key to it. If you do not watch your spiritual condition before me, then I will come to you. And that's it. I've done this before on the stage. I won't. It's a deliberate walk to you with a purpose in mind. I will deliberately come to you and this time I will come unexpectedly like a thief. You won't expect me. And with me will come judgment on this church. And what would the judgment be? I will close this church. I will snuff out that light. There will be no more church. Today it's a an archaeology archaeological site only. He said, I will come like a thief. Now, he wasn't just using those words, that picture. It's a picture which is repeated again in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, and we'll come to this later. He says, behold, in Revelation 16, I am coming like a thief. There's that phrase again. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on ready for the evil that is about to come against you. And he describes that evil. Again, same picture. Stay awake. Keep your garments on. Ready for action. Be ready. I'm going to come unexpectedly upon you. Stay awake. And then verse 4. Yet, I love this. I love this. With God's judgment is always mercy. And when the great 
falling away has happened, there is always a remnant He keeps for Himself. He is a faithful God. He has promised that there will always be those who are faithful. And here is the faithful bit. He said, yet there are still a few names inside us. Look at that word He uses. He doesn't say there are still a few believers. He says there are still a few names inside us, very specifically. Why names? There are still those I know who are faithful. There are still some names. You see, there's only a few left, but there are still some there who are faithful. And they will walk. They have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Interesting phrase he uses here. They will not, they have not soiled their clothing. It again comes back to the worship of Artemis. You see, as you came walking up towards the temple of Artemis, there were these big notices up. They had a dress code, believe it or not. And if you had dirty clothes on, you couldn't come in and worship because they saw that as disrespect to their goddess. And so what came from that? They used to build baths and change rooms and all kinds of things. And so you'd be diverted if the temple guards thought that you weren't suitably dressed and you would get washed, changed, and then you could only come and worship the goddess Diana. He uses this term. And uh, the specific terminology he uses is they haven't soiled their clothing was the same word used for underclothes. And I'm not going further with that. They have not yet soiled their clothing and so they are worthy of me. And is he talking about dirty clothing here? No. Those who heard these words would immediately get taken to Ezekiel. Back in the Old Testament. Because there was this quotation, Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 11. This is what the Lord said. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves. There's the word soil. And I will be their God, declares the Sovereign God. Any Jewish mind hearing these words would immediately know. He's quoting Ezekiel because they've learnt it as little children. And what the Lord is speaking about there is sin which defiles me. And that's why they needed to go and have their sins forgiven in the Old Testament. That's why they had to have blood's lamb or another animal's lamb shed on their behalf. Their sin had to be taken away. They had to be declared clean before the Lord again. He says, your sin which defiles you is what keeps you from me. But there are a few in this church, inside us, who have kept their clothes white and they will walk with me because they are worthy. They have been kept holy. And who are they made worthy by? Jesus Christ Himself, through their faithfulness to Him and His faithfulness to them. And so He carries on this picture of these white garments and we are now in verse 5. He says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus, like them, in white garments and I will never blot His name out of the book of life. Now there's a lot here and you need to really track with me. It doesn't look like a lot just from these words but there's a lot of Old Testament reference here. So he speaks about these white garments. The one who overcomes will be given a white garment. Now you need to know something about their games. The Greeks had their games. 
The Olympic Games came from the Greeks, believe it or not. And one of the races, now try not to picture this now please, it's a bit crude, but the men used to run, there were no women involved in the races initially, only men participated. Don't blame me, it's what they did. And the men used to run the races naked. In effect, they did everything naked. Discus, javelin, everything naked. But especially the races, they used to run naked. And the first person who crossed the line would get a beautiful white garment. It was given to them. Beautiful garment. That was the prize. Do you see the picture? Those who are the overcomers, he says, those who are the winners in Christ, will receive this beautiful white garment. And who's it made white by? Myself. Washed in my blood. And as soon as they heard white garments and received white garments, immediately they would be taken to blood shed for me. Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 speaks about it. It says that great crowd which gathers there without number, there are so many of them, and it's speaking about the future time when Christ has come again. That great crowd will be before Him and there will be this crowd dressed in white. They are the overcomers. The ones who have conquered. The ones who have been clothed in white garments by Jesus Christ Himself. And I pray that you will be there as part of that crowd there one day. But those are the ones He's speaking about here. If you continue and if you see that life continues to exist in this church, I will reward you with a white garment and you will be there with me in my heaven, says the Lord. You are the conquerors. And I will not blot out your name from the book of life. Now be careful here. There are those who have misinterpreted this to say that when you sin, you can lose your salvation. I don't see that in Scripture. Never. Because then there are some verses in Scripture that are untrue. And so we must look at the way we understand this. Now, there would be a reference back here to Exodus chapter 32 and we, we can turn there if you want to. Exodus chapter 32, verse 32 to 33 because some have misused this phrase. What we have here is Moses and they've had the golden calf and what happened when the people sinned before the Lord? The Lord was about to strike them dead. Right? Remember that? I've got some blank looks here, I'm worried. We need to do some Old Testament. Ah, yes, I am wrong. Exodus. Sorry, it's Exodus. should have checked my notes. At least it's here anyway. So, from Exodus chapter 32, if you want to turn there with me, Genesis, Exodus 32 and verse 32, we have this interesting phrase, and the Lord says to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And he's saying that because Moses said, Lord, the sin of these people is so great, just blot out my name. Now we need to know something else here. You see, a list was kept of all those who were living in the camp. And they did that later in the New Testament too. There was a list kept of all citizens. And when you died... Your name was blotted out from amongst those who were living at that time. You got taken off the list of the living. 
And even if you committed a serious crime, you could have your name erased from the list of the living. That's how serious they were about it. But right back here, Moses says, Lord, just kill me. Take my name out among these who have sinned. And the Lord says, those who have sinned against me, I will blot their names from my book. In other words, I will kill them. But was he speaking about the Lamb's book of life? He couldn't be. Because we have other verses which we'll get to, which speak about this Lamb's book of life, which was there from before the earth existed. So it can't be. You see, he's not speaking about here about a threat to, to delete believers' names from the book of life. He's describing physical death as punishment. I will take out this church. They will die. But he specifically says, I will not blot out the names of those who are faithful to me. Now, if you know, and uh, we know our theology, so I just want to point forward to that. The sin against the Holy Spirit, I can't go into all that today, but there is one which he says, if you sin against the Holy Spirit, you've lost your salvation. There's more to it. I'm summarizing here. But it's not about that. You cannot lose your salvation. When Christ has saved you, He does a perfect work. And yes, there are people who walk away from Him because of sin in their lives. What does He do? Lisa was kind of alluding to that a little bit today. He takes us through hard times sometimes. There's twice that the Lord speaks about hard times in our lives. It's it's when He wants to teach us something in life and when He wants to stretch us, as Lisa said this morning, in life. He'll take us through times of testing But there are also times when he takes us through hard times because of discipline. He wants to turn the head of the ass, which doesn't want to hear, which is obstinate. He turns our heads through hard times. But he will not blot out our name. He is the faithful God. When he has served us, he will do a perfect work in us. He will make us perfect in Christ. We will reach eternity with him. He will make sure. And so those who have walked away from Christ, there are two explanations. Either one, they've never come to salvation in Christ, or He will still do a great work in their lives. And one day, they will turn to Him. So what is our responsibility? We don't always know the answers. We are just to pray for them. And when we finish praying for them, we have to pray for them. And when we finish praying for them again, we have to pray for them, because He is faithful. And so our children that have walked away, And many of you have got sad stories. Pray for your children. Continue to pray for your children if God will will not bring them back to Himself. He will. But we need to be faithful to Him. We need to pray. You cannot lose your salvation. Deliverance is to be found if your name is found in the Lamb's book of life. I want to look at a few verses here because there's so much I had to pick and choose. So, a few references. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. There's so many references here. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Because we need to differentiate here between the Lamb's book of life and books were opened. There seems to be a two sets of books. One set of books where everyone who ever lives, all their deeds are recorded there. We're thinking pictorially 
here now, right? We're thinking in pictures now. Their names, their names are written up in the books. And then we get the Lamb's Book of Life where those who Christ saves and those whose names have been there, and this is where we come to another theological term, predestination, where those He has chosen before time, their names get written up there, and I'm not going there now. It's a big topic. It is, it is a truth which exists in parallel to I can choose Christ. And I'll maybe make that a sermon one day, a whole sermon. But it's a truth that gets taught, that once our names are there, we need to know that He chose us before time, because Scripture says so, and we'll get to that verse now. But let's just look at this verse, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael. Who's Michael? The archangel. The great prince who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. That at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Alright. Now, we don't want to read a verse on its own. So let's look at a few others. Daniel chapter 7 verse 10. Just go back a few verses, a few chapters rather. This is Daniel's vision of the Lord on his throne. And I'm just reading verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now we've got the books. All right, let's carry on looking at this. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. In the New Testament now. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. Sorry? I'm sorry. 13 verse 8 first and then 17. I must get a new... No, it's me. Revelation 13 verse 8. Sorry, just try and track here with me. I'm not making it easy. Let's read from verse 7. All saints was allowed to make war... Oh no, hang on, we can't start there. Right, verse 5. The beast. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority from 42 months, 442 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written here it is, before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. We've got to deal with that verse. And so there's that verse which speaks about God having written our names in His book of life before we even existed. A whole different sermon. I can't go there now. Suffice to say this morning, to get back on track here, you cannot lose your salvation. That's what he's speaking about here. I will not blot out his name from my book of life. If he is saved, I will continue to save him until I come again. Deliverance is to be found in being written into the Lamb's book of life. 
and to carry on. And now the picture changes. It changes to a court scene. And I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. We're in the courtroom. Someone is calling to the dock. And up stands the advocate and he or she confesses the name of that person before the judge. They state their case. He says, I will confess your name before my Father. I will speak for you before my Father and before the angels who witness all this. I will be your advocate. There's a New Testament phrase. Jesus Christ Himself. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. This is what it says. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, that word acknowledge is confess. Your Bible might even say that. So everyone who confesses my name before men, I will also confess or acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, the same Christ who confesses our name before the Father, if you're a believer in Christ, that same Christ will also have a completely different sentence over those who stand before the Father and are not found to be written into the Lamb's book of life. He will say to the Father, guilty as charged. That's also a confession. And so the, the Spirit says to you and I this morning, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So what is he saying to us this morning? And again I want to say what Dave said to us before in the previous sermon. The Lord is writing this to this specific church at Sardis, but there are lessons that are here to be learnt by us too. So the direct message is to them, but what is the Holy Spirit saying to you and I this morning? What are the lessons we can learn from this this morning? And the first one is this, it's a question to you and I. Are we asleep this morning? I don't mean that just physically here. But are we asleep before the Lord? As a church and as individuals? What's the motto of Wanganese Baptist Church? We put it up every single Sunday morning. Yes? Thank you, David. Someone knows it. To know Jesus and to make Him known. That's our confession about Jesus Christ. Tell me, is it true in practice? Are we alive before Christ as a church? Are you alive before Him as an individual member who makes up a church? Do you know Jesus? Do you make Him known? That's the definition of being alive. Otherwise, wake up! You're about to die. Take notes, says the Lord. You're in great danger. As a church, you know, we have a reputation in this town. This church has been going for a hundred plus years in this town. And it's known for a church which preaches God's Word. We're known as that, by that name, in this community. But tell me, does that reputation carry through to what we do with that preached Word every single week? Do we obey it as individuals? 
Are we faithful in our works before the Lord or are they also incomplete? Are you and I vigilant for those early warning signs of a dying church? Are you and I vigilant in our own spiritual lives for those warning signs which will be there? And I can guarantee they will be there. We need to look for them because they start with sin. And there is sin to be found in every single person here. And so it's what we do with that sin. If we don't attend to it, the dying starts. What are some of the early warning signs of a dying church? There's a low view of God. God's Word is not held high. It's not respected. People hardly bother to read it. And if they do read it, they don't obey it. There's a tolerance of sin. And as I speak about the church, think of your own life. I think of mine with shame. Is there a tolerance of sin? Well, if I tolerate it, I'm starting to die. Is there compromise with the surrounding culture? Do I bend my message and my testimony to suit the culture around me? Maybe there's an overconfidence in our own abilities, our own resources, and we no longer look to the Lord, the one who equips, the one who resources, the one who gives us inner strength, the Holy Spirit who makes us alive. And who keeps us alive? Are we overconfident? Are we a bit like the, the people inside us? Or maybe it's all about us and our programs and not so much anymore about them and their need of Jesus Christ. In your own life, do you think about those around you and their need of a saviour? Or maybe it's a spiritual complacency which has come into our church and maybe into our lives. I'm asking questions. I'm not making any allegations here. The Spirit must do the work in us. Have we grown complacent? And maybe we've got this attitude of same old, same old in us. Leave me, I'm comfortable. The Word says to us today, strengthen what remains. It's not too late. We need to repent We need to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ in word and in deed, in practice. And then says the Lord, if we do that, I will confess your name before my Father. I want to put to you this morning, if you're not a believer here today, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And the definitive answer is no. Not yet. Why? there is still time for you to come. If you are this side of the grave, standing on two pins above the surface, I mean on the surface of the earth rather, sorry, then there is still time for you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But the moment you close your eyes in death, you cannot choose to be saved by Christ anymore. There's the reality of predestination. You cannot choose Christ anymore. It's too late. And so while you are living, bow before this great God of ours and ask Jesus Christ to save you and to write your name in indelible, blood-stained ink into His Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is in there, He will confess your name before the Father and His angels too. And when He opens the books, 
and he reads about what you have done, there will be one inscription read over your name, saved by grace, all is forgiven. Jesus Christ, the Saviour, declares so. I want you to set the scene with me. Because we are all going to be in the scenario. Every single person is going to be called before the Heavenly Father and the Judge of all earth. We are all going to be called. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, set the scene with me. And I'm serious when I say this. We're all going to appear before God one day. He's going to call us name by name. It's your moment to be called. Calvin Yonker, step forward. I don't know what it's going to be like, but and I stand before the Almighty God, whether I'm lying in front of Him because He's Almighty God or standing before Him. Then what happens next? Is His name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Yes, Lord. His name is written. And Jesus Christ, my advocate, steps forward and says, My Father, Calvin is saved by me. He put his trust in me. His sins are washed clean. Allow him to enter into your kingdom. I think I'll fall down at his feet then if I'm not yet. And yet, my friends, if you're not a believer, Bob Jones, step forward. And Bob, you will step forward. And that same sentence will come. Is his name written in the Lamb's book of life? No, my Lord, it's not there. And Jesus will step forward and say, Guilty, my Father. He did not trust in your son. And the father will say, away with you. To hell. Forever. Because you would not take up the love offering that my son offered freely to you. Away for eternity and suffer my wrath. I pray that you will come to Jesus Christ and be saved. You will stand before the Father one day. Every single person will. Wake up! There is still time. Let us pray. Lord, we have to confess that there are many moments in our lives when we are half asleep spiritually. 
There's danger coming against us and we seem to absorb sin. And we allow it in our lives and we tolerate it. But you warn us here this morning, wake up. Deal with sin. Ask my Spirit, the one who is the all-seeing God, to show you your sin, to deal with it, and then through my blood to have it washed away. Because otherwise, you're in mortal danger. You will start to die. Before you know it, there will be hardly any life left. Lord, wake us up. Give us spiritual eyes which will see. May we see that when we overcome, through your help, that you will give us those garments which are whitewashed through your blood. And we will stand one day with that great multitude without number. Not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done, our faithful Saviour and Redeemer. But wake us up, Lord. May we as Wanganu East Baptists be known in this community to be a light-bearing church. May we not go on what's happened in the past. May we look at our relationship with you as individual people who belong to you. May we look at our everyday relationship with you and keep that fresh, vibrant and alive. Keep us obedient to your word and keep us looking out to see who else needs to hear about this wonderful Saviour. Keep us alive in Jesus Christ, we pray, to your glory and for your sake and your kingdom. Amen.